This podcast contains potentially sensitive topics, drug use, and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. We drove up. It was uh, we were going to meet at eight o'clock, uh, and took a long drive up and went into a mall parking lot. So it's lit, but it's still sort of deserted. And waited. The suspense was huge, huge. Is this really going to happen? Is he really going to show up? Is it going to be another delay? Are we going to all this trouble for nothing? Is there going to be an argument at the last minute? So he sat and waited, tick-tock, like a some kind of prisoner exchange or uh, something happening in a deserted parking lot. And then finally the the white pickup truck drove up 20, 30 yards away and stopped. I'm Rex Holbein, and welcome to You Know Me Now, a podcast conversation that strives to amplify the unheard voices in our community. For the past 13 years, I have been fortunate to meet and spend a great deal of time with thousands of folks living homeless. Through those conversations and friendships, I learned how destructive and baseless the dehumanizing effects of the negative stereotype are against ordinary people, people who, quite frankly, are just like you and me. In these episodes, I want to remind all of our listeners that the folks who share here do so with a great deal of vulnerability and courage. They share a common hope that by giving all of us a window into their world, they're opening an increased level of awareness, understanding, and connection within our own community. The idea or act of mutual aid has been around for a long time, for a very long time, perhaps in the simplest form from the beginning of time. Mutual aid is nothing more than people coming together in community to take care of each other, often addressing basic needs and human rights that are not being met. The barriers or the reason for needs not being met and or rights not being afforded are often systemic and political. The people who get involved in mutual aid are motivated by the injustices and want to take part in direct action, which includes providing services, advocating for needed systems change, and connections through friendship. In the United States, we see mutual aid groups forming as early as the late 1700s, often by minority groups being oppressed. Today, there has been a resurgence of participation in mutual aid. The COVID pandemic, Black Lives Matter, and homelessness are just a few examples illustrating that the societal systems used to serve us are not adequately meeting the needs of our community. For that reason, people are stepping forward to get involved. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Caitlin, a young woman struggling through addiction, homelessness, and loss. When we first met Caitlin, she was in her tent suffering from a great deal of physical and emotional pain. She had an abscess located at her lower butt cheek, which was swollen and badly infected. In fact, she was burning up with a high fever. Even worse for her, she was emotionally distraught over a stranger having taken Prince, her dog, her best friend. Caitlin was at a serious low point. Her need for housing, drug rehab, and therapy were unavailable, all dead ends. She was slipping through the cracks. 
When people are in their moment of deep struggle, we all have difficulty in knowing how best to be of service. It can feel insurmountable. Each person in need has different barriers with different complexities and different abilities. However, what is common to each person is the need for human connection. It begins there. And with this connection, the best path forward, one that is often hidden, begins to reveal itself. A small group of people formed a community and began to get to know Caitlin. From those friendships, a path forward for her emerged. Let's begin by getting to know Caitlin. My parents were never together. They were split up before I remember it, really. My dad was a, a drug addict. My mom was hi, a hidden drug addict. Like I think the first memory I remember was my dad taking me to the father-daughter dinner dance like thing. And like we stayed just long enough to take pictures, and then we he took me store to store to store to buy a um, pseudofedrin. I was like maybe nine, ten. And where was that? Where were you born? Oh, I was born in Everett. Yeah. Did you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I got um. I at that time I had one younger brother. Um, he was two years younger than me, <clears throat> and I was pretty much you know like the the parent role. Since, like, you know, the the parents in my life kind of really didn't do their job. <laughs> I remember, like, cooking, you know, cooking for me and my brother, you know. I guess, the, you know, like, I grew up fast, <laughs> in a way, I guess. Caitlin's mother remarried, but her biological father continued to come in and out of her life during her childhood. Um, He was always coming in and out, you know, trying to do what he thought a dad should do, like, just for appearances, pretty much. But he was, at the time, like, um, he was cooking meth, and so that's kind of what his life was. <laughs> yeah, that controlled him. Yeah. And then I remember, um, like, the last time before he ended up going to prison, like, um, but we got a phone call, and my, my dad, my biological dad, had been sleeping and high on top of a train down in Everett, and the train started moving, so he tried to get off of it, and happened to get sucked up under it, and it cut off his his left leg and his right arm, and like he survived it. The guy that showed up like to work like a half an hour early and found him, or else he wouldn't have made it, you know. Would have bled out. Yeah, but still, it didn't stop him from doing what he was doing. <laughs> yeah. Was your was your stepdad a a positive influence? Yeah, he was. He, he was the only like real like um, structure and like discipline I had. My mom was the type that, oh, you're grounded, and then like later that, you know, that night drives me to a rave with my friends, you know. <laughs> but my stepdad, yeah, he was the only one that really kept structure and like discipline in the house. You know, when I was 13, I was in middle school, seventh grade, and I got my first girlfriend. You know, she was a little kid with like fake piercings at the time, a little goth-looking girl. You know, she was smoking weed, and I remember crying at night, like, so scared for her that, you know, for her smoking weed, and that I, I begged her to get off the weed. And <laughs> and then, like, my mom, um, that later that year, uh, sent me to go stay with my aunt in Alabama because of me going down the wrong path, which was a big mistake. My aunt turned out to be an abusive, physically and mentally abusive alcoholic. And so the only neighbor within like 30 miles was the neighbor boy who was 17 years old and a heroin addict. So 
I try, tried heroin the first time when I was 12, and I did that for about a half a month before getting shipped back up here. And obviously I didn't have connections to get that kind of drug, you know, I didn't have connections to get any kind of drug. So did you, did you finish high school? Um, no, um, I dropped out in ninth grade. After going to uh, Linwood High School for like a couple of months, I ended up getting kicked out of there for fighting. Um, and then they put me in Scriber Lake High, um, Alternative High School. And I was there for a little while and ended up getting kicked out of there. And they tried to put me in the um, Step Up program, which was at Scriber Lake High School. And after like a couple of days, I ended up like dropping out and not going anymore after that. I, I'd started raving, like going to like raves, the party raves. And um, I'd started using ecstasy and then shortly after, like, you know, within a couple of years after that, I started using, like, meth and heroin, so. Yeah, at 15, I had gotten a boyfriend at my first rave and moved out with him, <laughs> so, like, yeah. <laughs> All sorts of fun. We had our own apartment and everything, and... Was he older? Together? Yeah, yeah, I was 15, he was, like, 18. Caitlin is aware that the deck was stacked against her growing up that the people in her life and the circumstances she faced made it difficult for her. At the same time, she is quick to take responsibility for her decisions. You know, I'm curious, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, at 12, there's no way I could have taken heroin. Do you, do, do you think that your upbringing and being around drugs, or was there some hurt or anger within you? Oh, yeah, there or? was childhood stuff that happened that kind of like paved the path for that I think you know and I'm not saying by any means that's you know it excuses what I did you know because anybody can go through what I went through and fucking you know decide to become a doctor you know but instead I decided to be a drug addict <laughs> I was I got to a point where I was taking like 20 to like you know 40 50 pills in a, in a night the way ecstasy works you probably already are aware of this it plays off the serotonin receptors so, like, I was in, like, a constant, like, numbness, like, of just, like, blah, you know, like, I could see that, you know, I wasn't going down the path that I wanted to go, because, like, I remember being a kid and flushing my mom's cigarettes, you know, and, like, you know, saying that, you know, there's two things I'll never do, I'll never, uh, you know, I'll never do heroin, and I'll never do meth, because I didn't want to be like my dad, and by 15, I'd already done it, both. I don't know. You got. I got too involved in the, the the world itself and the crowd itself. Even if I wanted to stop, you know, I had gotten the boyfriend that I like. I said I moved out with. He was only doing ecstasy when I first met him at the rave that I met him at. But and he was scared of needles when I first met him. But like I ended up going to jail while after a few like six months of us being together and one of our uh, mutual acquaintances got him to start shooting up, and so when I got out, he was shooting up heroin, and it was, it was bad, it was all bad, you know, I was making a lot of money doing, like, drug runs and stuff, like, uh, I, it was enough to have my own apartment at the, the Totem Lake Apartments, which is nice apartments, you know, I had a lot of money back then, and that's another reason it was addicting, you know, I saw the power in it, you know, I was 15 years old, making more than, you know, probably more than a, an average attorney. Like, that's insane to think about, you know. The amount of money Caitlin was seeing completely blinded her. It was fueling an ever more expanding and chaotic lifestyle, one that was filled with illegal and personally destructive activities. 
Caitlin became a frequent flyer at the local jails. She witnessed friends overdose and die. Her own addiction had spiraled out of control. In hindsight, she'll tell you that she was a lost kid playing an adult game. Caitlin's life found a turning point when she was serving a lengthy prison sentence due to a guilty robbery charge. While inside, she took advantage of an education program. I think the pinnacle point of like what really set me on a track to growing up, and I grew up in prison. I, I got my, my good enough degree, so my GED. I remember taking my, my, my uh, tests, right? Like in um, each one, like you'll do um, one a week. And every time I come back from the test, uh, my, my teacher in there would ask me, how do you think I did? And I said, I, pro- I failed. You're probably going to have to sign me up again for the next week. And I got high honors on three out of four of them. And I was only a few points away from the math one to get in high honors as well. I don't know. I know I'm very smart. You know, my, my pictures up at the Edmonds Community College in the EdCap office for summer quarter 2012, like I pulled a student of the quarter. You know, I was, I got a 4.0 GPA. I was the highest uh, GPA in my entire class, which was filled up like a lot of adults, you know. You know, I, I've always had a, like a drive for knowledge, you know. If there's something to be learned, you know, I, I don't see a reason not to learn it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Where do you think that comes from? Is it part of just your genetic makeup, or is it the fact that maybe the opportunities weren't there and, and you're reaching out for them? Or? I think the opportunity was always there. I just was distracted with, you know, other shit, you know, that really wasted a lot of time, you know. And sometimes I get on this, like, thought, like, th- like stuck in the thought of, like, oh, man, I've wasted all my, you know, my, my youth, And, you know, now I've got so little time, and I'm like, wait a minute, Caitlin, you're only 30. Caitlin got out of prison at the still very young age of 23, and despite the advances she had made, she was released back into homelessness. Um, I had a, like, I guess a sugar daddy at the time. Like, um, he, he was, uh, he was pretty much there for, like, when Jay ended up, my ex ended up leaving and going, um, over in, uh, to Eastern Washington to OMAC to stay with his dad while he was passing away. Like, I kind of was, found myself after being so codependent and, like, you know, with him every day to having nobody, you know, and, like, out there on the streets alone, you know, no dog, no friends, no family, you know. And I ended up uh, getting reacquainted with um, a guy named Ron, and he pretty much, uh, you know, we were staying at hotels, and, you know, he he pretty much saved my life, actually, you know. In he was what, there for me, like, a lot of ways, like, um, getting me off the streets, um, being there for me, you know, got me a freaking Camaro for going to detox, like, what? <laughs> and then I made the mistake of going and picking up Jay over at his mom's and bringing him back from uh, Olympia, he got Ron to relapse on crack, which he wasn't using the first, like, you know, year I was with him. So you get out, you're 23, Ron really helps you move forward, um, get you off the street, and when, how long did that last? Until Jay beat him up a couple times, and then uh, I ended up going in for emergency surgery because I had air trapped in an abscess on my arm. It was from muscling heroin and meth. Um, but, you know, I, I was in the aftercare, um, after having the surgery, right, 
and I, I, I was supposed to be there for a couple more days, and uh, I had uh, my my pit bull, um, Leo, who I'd had for a while at our apartment and everything. Well, I get a call while I'm in recovery and in my, my room after the surgery, and Ron says that he has to go into the hospital because something's wrong with him. And this is right as COVID happened, you know, um, and I'm like, well, what about the dogs? And he's like, well, I, they're in the car. I don't, I don't know, you know. So I ended up having to leave against medical advice to go take care of the dogs. And like I said, he was my source of income, you know. And so when he went into the hospital, I didn't know he wasn't going to come back. And so I, for the first few days, I was able to, keep, you know, um, get a room for me and the dog. I ended up rehoming Sadie with a good friend of mine. And um, I had Leo with me, but it was freezing cold out. Like, I, I had a Econo Line 350 van that um, I had bought um, while I was with him. And so, like, I had all of our stuff from our apartment in that van. Like, after parking at the 155th Safeway in Shoreline for, like, a few days, I ended up uh, getting a warning I needed to move it. And uh, I moved it and then ended up going to Everett with a friend of mine with my dog. And I come back and my, my van was gone. Right before Caitlin's van was towed and impounded, her boyfriend Jay was arrested on a warrant. She was, once again, all alone, with nothing except her dog Leo. During that time, while out walking, a van pulled up alongside of her and asked about her dog, telling her how beautiful he was. You know, and they roll their window down, and they're like, where'd you get the dog? And I was like, I, I started talking to him, and I was like, you know, I bought him from my friend, but I just lost my place, and I'm going to have to rehome him. And they're like, are you are you serious? Um, they ended up pulling into the um, Ranch 99 parking lot, and, and they showed me pictures of their dog who had just passed away from cancer that looked identical to my dog. But um, I remember uh, the little boy saying their old dog's name, and Leo looked up and then, like, jumped up into their car. I was just going to give them the dog, you know, because I couldn't. He was so cold at night, you know. It was so cold for him. Like, he was a short-haired pit bull, you know, and he would shiver at night, you know. And so, like, I, they they agreed that they would take him. And I, like, when he, he, he jumped up in the car and he looked back at me like, you're ready to go, Mom, you know. It broke me. Like, I turned around and I started, like, hyperventilating, crying. And the lady comes up to me and she's like, here. And she hands me, like, 650 bucks. And I was like, no, that's not the point of this, you know. And she's like, just take it. You need it. And then, like, I started crying even more. And, like, she gives me another 100 bucks. And, like, I remember looking at him, just waiting for me to get in the car with him. You know, it was, it was heartbreaking. Like, it, it really did break me. Like, it, it really broke me. It's also amazing how much unbelievable goodness and kindness, right? Like that moment, right? Because that that money probably was pretty vital for you at that moment. Yeah, it was able to get me a motel for like two weeks. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah. It was really nice. In a way, like it was like, I didn't want to have taken the money for that, you know, because then people would be like, oh, you sold your dog. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, but the way she did it, it made it feel like that's not what it was, you know. During her motel stay, Caitlin realizes it's time to end the relationship with her partner, Jay. She's had it. But as with many relationships, it's complicated. Running in the same world, he continues to come in and out of her life. I'd seen everything that he'd, he'd taken from me. I'd allowed him to take from me, you know. 
Because when I first got out of prison, like, I, I had him come move in with me and everything, you know? I get out of prison November 14th, 2014, and I met my ex-J um, December 7th, and he was my relapse on drugs. Leaving Jay was a big step forward for Caitlin. At about the same time, the federal government began issuing their stimulus checks. For the homeless, it was a huge moment of opportunity, potentially life-altering. Some made the most of it, others not so much. Caitlin bought a car to live in. She needed shelter. We were originally staying in, like, Shoreline area, but, like, they were big on, like, you know, anti-homeless you know, like literally that if they, they caught you sleeping anywhere in like Shoreline, they would tell you, hey, you can't be here. You need to go to Seattle. And sometimes they'd even give you a ride to Seattle. Along with the car, Caitlin also got a new dog, a husky puppy that she named Prince. You want to take just two minutes to just talk about Prince and then we'll come back to Oh, yeah. He's a fluff butt. He's a what? He's a fluff butt. His name's Sir Princeopher Robin. Yeah, no, he's he's my everything, honestly. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be alive today. Like, I've gone through hell and back, and there's been a few times within the past year that, like, like I, I, I'm serious. I would I would have ended it if it wasn't for having this dog. Mm, he helped you find your way back. Oh, yeah, big time. He didn't give me a choice. <laughs> you know, you, just because you feel like your life stops, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have to go potty anymore and doesn't need food anymore. You know, it's easy for me to not, you know, take care of myself, but not so easy for me not to take care of him. He is honestly one of the most beautiful dogs I've ever seen. I'm not just saying that. I, he's just stunningly beautiful. He knows it, too. <laughs> he knows it. He's a good boy. And he's such a cuddler. And how did you get Prince again? So uh, I got Prince when we were getting the disaster relief funds. It was a mixture of that and then a, the stimulus check money because they originally asked for 1250 so 1250 for him. But we talked him down to 950 We found him um, on an ad on Craigslist. Once I got him, you know, like, uh, he was only six weeks old and I had my BMW at the time. He's he's an, he's amazing. Like he, like I said, six weeks old, he was already potty trained. He potty trained himself. Like I swear it. Like he is so beyond smart. Like it blows my mind. There'll be people listening to this that will say, "This woman's homeless and she's got a BMW and she's buying a nine hundred dollar dog. What is with that?" That's a good question. Like um, I didn't want to buy the the BMW. The the my ex that I was with. It was his idea. I'd found a um, ad for a truck, as well as like a um, a fifth wheel. It was a a, a truck, a flatbed truck, and a fifth wheel for like uh, eleven hundred, and they ran, and I wanted that. But seeing as the RV that my ex had bought with his money that had been stolen from us, he pretty much you know like you know, forced my hand in getting a, a, a BMW. And trust me, like, I, I can't even tell you how much we argued about it. Like, I was like, why do we need a fucking BMW, dude? Like, we can have a place to live. And he was all about it. He wanted the BMW, wanted the BMW, wanted the BMW. You were thinking practicality, and he was thinking image. When the, the uh, stimulus checks came, everybody I knew all bought dope. They became dope dealers for, like, a couple of weeks before they all fell off. And I didn't want to do that. 
Like, and I knew that that would, would, would that would, would ha that was what would happen. So I wanted to get something that I would be able to keep, you know, and something meaningful in my life, a reason to wake up in the morning. I never, never would have thought that I would have gotten something as amazing as him. I, I <laughs> had no clue. I was probably I was thinking, oh great, I'm gonna be up for like you know potty training this in you know in my car and in the tent. It's gonna be fun, but nope, I got blessed. I got literally blessed. As much as I love him, and I would never change the fact that I got him, nor will I would ever give him away or sell him. Um, I will never suggest anybody get a husky. <laughs> yeah, but you're also obviously a dog person. Oh, yeah. So getting a dog, it wasn't like. Oh, I'm lonely. I'm gonna get myself a dog. You actually, you actually had dogs, and you were, yeah. and you're, you knew what you were getting into in a sense. Maybe not with husband. Yeah, totally, exactly. But but it's a relationship that's important to you. Yeah. Caitlin's BMW car, or I should say, home, didn't last long. She got mixed up in an unfortunate incident where it was totaled and eventually towed. She was back in a tent, now living in Woodland Park. She was still heavily using street drugs, and her now ex-boyfriend, Jay, who was living in the same camp area, was a constant source of trouble. At about the same time Caitlin had moved to the park, a small group of people formed a community to do outreach, volunteering aid work at the growing encampment where Caitlin was staying. They would bring needed supplies, masks, and food on a regular basis to the folks living there, and maybe more importantly, they were developing relationships. Two of those folks, Ed and Katie, did not know Caitlin at first, but their paths were about to cross in a big, big way. I sat down with each of them to better understand their outreach efforts and help tell the story of what was about to happen to Caitlin and Prince. Uh, I'm a playwright. I've been self-employed for some decades. Uh, at a, a very uh, a low income level, uh, uh, but sustainable. Please meet Ed. Uh, made time over the years to get involved with what we call social justice things. Just been wrestling with issues of privilege. Uh, and so I think I have to say, despite growing up what I perceived as poor, I'm in a certain amount of privilege in my life and that gives me time to spend on other things. Uh, I grew up uh, in a house full of love, um, sort of lower middle class, meaning holes in my shoes, but not going to bed hungry. Uh, and one of my parents, my dad, uh, was at some level a street kid. Uh, dropped out of school in eighth grade and so forth. Uh, described himself as a, 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 a housebreaker and, you know, forced to survive in a lot of ways. So there's a certain inherited empathy for people who are outside the system of privilege at the same time. And it is also true that, that uh, a lot of the past couple few decades, uh, I've spent a lot of time working on issues around Palestine and Palestinian liberation. And being part of that struggle, which is 10,000 miles away, but I've been over there a lot, has enabled me to be in it and outside of it at the same time. And so it has helped me understand systemically what privilege is about 
and to see myself in relation to my own world in a different way and understand not just that it's nice to be nice to people, but that there's, uh, there can be an inherited responsibility for responsibility and repair and solidarity. For those that are privileged. For those that are privileged. So I am the oldest of three children. I grew up in California till I was eight, and then we moved up here. Uh, my dad is an airline pilot. Please meet Katie. I grew up middle class, didn't go a day without food or my basic needs being met. So, you know, recognizing my privilege, I have a lot of privilege in that. Um, that being said, mental illness was still pretty prevalent in my f both immediate family and with my grandmother. Both my sister and grandmother are bipolar. That kind of shaped a lot of my growing up and also my parents, you know, getting a divorce when I was 18 and fighting throughout the house growing up kind of put me in a position where I felt like I grew up a little quicker than other of my peers. Um, and I ended up going to live in Bellingham to go to school, but I really went there to get away from my parents. So I wasn't really ready for that You were ready yet. to fly the coop. No, that was maybe a bad financial decision, but a good life decision for me to kind of get out, get out of there um, and experience independence. And then um, moved back in with my parents after that, went, decided to shift and go to school for graphic design, and then uh, moved in with my partner in Ballard, and that's where I've lived for the past nine years, wow. which is pretty unique, I think, to people my age in Seattle to have the same living situation for so long. Yeah. Um, it's allowed me to really, like, root down and know my neighbors, which is something that my mom always taught me to do is to introduce yourself to your neighbors and talk to people and you know my mom would be bringing the quiche over and like watching people's kids would I watch people's pets like just very my mom was kind of very community oriented and I think I, I maybe picked that up from her and so I've I have the privilege of you know knowing my neighbors and feeling safe in my community and then in 20 20 before the pandemic I got fired from a restaurant job because the new manager thought I was going to take his job because <laughs> I had opened the restaurant and everyone was coming to me for questions instead of him and you know I bought this this Kia Sorento and I was going to live in it and travel the U.S. and then the pandemic hit and I was like oh maybe I won't do that and I started furiously sewing masks I probably sewed like 5,000 masks um, just on the side just as a as just a kind thing to do it was honestly my pandemic mode mm -hmm. was like, it was my routine. It was like, get up in the morning, sew masks, watch what's going on, read as much as I can about what's going on. And then realizing that many people were really struggling and realizing that our government was not supporting us. And these are all things that I like knew before, but I hadn't experienced on a collective level. And I felt like it was like the proof that I needed to be like, oh, yeah, this shit is fucked. And we are not, we don't actually have real community. And that made me really think about how things could be different. And that, you know, we're not imagining well enough what things could look like. And I think there's a lot of like complacency and like just being like, oh, this is the way that it is. Katie's life was about to take another turn. 
she got involved with the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest, or now famously known around the world as CHOP. She started a medic station on Olive Street that turned into a large safety hub for protesters. She coordinated help and support for the people on the front line, where she herself was taking part. I noticed how unhoused people were being treated through the uprising and noticed their displacement due to the uprising. And that was a hard thing because I was like, I believe in us being here for this, but also people, human beings who were living in this park can no longer live here right now. It's been taken over. It's been taken over. And I felt like kind of colonial about it. I was like, ooh, this is not good. We need to do something to show up for the folks that have been displaced from this. And that kind of started my foray into bringing food to people and just checking in with people. And I, I, I remember using the wiffle ball analogy a lot. If you think about a wiffle ball and all the holes and like water shooting out of all the holes from the inside, like an unlimited amount of water, and you're just like, oh, okay, I gotta plug the holes, but you only have 10 fingers. So you have to, you know, think about, is it, is it, am I making an impact just going around here and there and here and there and giving people sandwiches? And I kind of felt like, no, I kind of felt like, like, yeah, while people are receiving this and they're grateful and they I maybe have touched someone and they have been like, oh, this is awesome. And that that's good being sp- spread. And that, But it wasn't, I wasn't getting to the point where I was like able to see the same people again and get to know them. And I felt like that was a void. So I decided to just try to go to areas near my house where there were unhoused people instead of just all over the city like I was before. And Woodland Park is where I met Rachel, who introduced me to Ed. And that's how I started coming on Sundays to Woodland. And I really liked Woodland because it was a consistent time that we all met. And I got to know the same folks who were living there. So and in, in, at Woodland, you were, you were joining in on mutual aid, basically. Is that right? I mean, we, what we were trying to do is mutual aid. I think... I think that true mutual aid is more reciprocal. I would struggle to say that we were in community with people there. I would say we, we were, but we weren't, right? Because we're outsiders coming in with resources. So there's already this like power dynamic. Yes, it was. Str- we were trying to be mutual aid. That was, yep. that was the effort. I think that's why I say mutual aid efforts when I talk about it, because I don't want to claim that we're doing mutual aid in the same capacity as people who are like like if you look at like Latino communities where people are truly yeah. watching out for each other they're watching each other's kids they're sending each other money yeah. they're 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 com- coming to going on strike with each other at their jobs like that's more, yeah, more reciprocal mutual it's woven and the fabrics going both ways yeah yeah. Yeah, we met a lot of people and I I over time the the population shifted and uh other other great folks came in and the, there sort of came a time where I was the last of the original crew but had been replaced by a lot of other people and other great organizers Katie whom you met as well and and so I I had occasion to know a lot of people there by name and be one of the couple of us that could kind of map out uh, people. And I didn't know Caitlin. I hadn't met Caitlin. I heard about her from somebody else. I met Caitlin when there had already been attempts to separate her from her dog, Prince, 
who was kind of a puppy by that point, kind of a big puppy. And I'm gonna just jump in. The first time that you'd heard about this, this was by a group of people that were cleaning up, trying to clean up the park, and, and they were thinking that they were doing the right thing by wanting to take the dog. Yes, there's a whole history of all kinds of people uh, coming through the park and stealing dogs from unhoused people and giving them to the Humane Society, which then is like having your car towed and you have to pay a fee to get the dog back. Which means it's out of out of bounds. It out of can limits. be. Well, a lot of people Typically. struggle. It's like your child. What I saw people who have no money is struggle to assemble $300 to get their dog back uh, in ways. Um, when I first met her, she was having some pretty significant physical health issues. And like many unhoused people, not really trusting going to medical settings, hospitals or clinics, and struggling with her substance use and her mental health um, and her relationships and just kind of general survival as well. She's always been someone who's incredibly fiery and knows, like, isn't is not afraid to say what she thinks. And I think that's really beautiful, given everything that she's been through, that, that she hasn't been silenced, you know, um, that she still has her voice, because I see a lot of people that don't. And it's pretty hard to get that back. Not impossible, but it's a journey. And she still has that and still has her fight. And so I think when I met her, I saw that in her. I think Ed, Ed saw it in her too. Her dog was taken in a time when she was not able to take care of herself very well. And she needed her dog like to, to support her. And that was like, her dog was her rock in that time. And unfortunately, someone with power and money uh, tricked her. I ended up uh, having a really bad abscess and getting. I was going septic, which with blood poisoning, and when uh, I don't really expect people to know what it's like, but when you are going toxic, uh, my temperature was one hundred one five, and then it spiked to one hundred two seven. I was becoming delirious, and I'd gone to go to the emergency room, and I'd bought enough dope to make sure that I was okay while I was there. You know, well, we get into the emergency room and they call me to go back to the, um, the where they take your vitals. And I ask Jay for my, my stuff and he hands me almost nothing. And so, needless to say, we start arguing and I, we get kicked out of the hospital. And so I was so sick that, like, I made it to the exit slash entrance of Northwest Hospital and I laid down right there. And I laid there for, like, over a day. I couldn't, I could, I was too sick. I couldn't make it to, to not, um, specified and not dope sick mind you i was sick sick from the abscess. You know, i was dying like i was literally dying with sept i was going septic um with septicemia or whatever it's called uh blood poisoning caitlin spends the night on the sidewalk in front of the entry gate to the hospital early the next morning when um uh, the chiropractor ends up pulling out and he pulls out and goes drives by us and then stops turns around and comes back and parks like you know near us and then exits his car and comes over and starts talking to me. Just to jump in here and clarify, we've elected not to use the name or location of the person Caitlin refers to as the chiropractor. We're doing this out of respect for him. You know, I'd let him know what was going on with me health-wise for the most part, you know, not really telling him why, you know. He's like, uh, you know, talks to me for a few minutes and then, you know, mentions about how cute Prince was and you know, then touch, asks me if I'd be willing to sell him. <laughs> to where I respond, uh, 
absolutely not. This is like, he's like my child. This is my everything, you know. I asked him if they have, you know, it's like a kid when you sell your kid, you know. It's usually I'll respond, you know, to that, that question. Because that's how you felt about Prince. Exactly. And um, uh, he asked me where I live. And I say I, I said near Green Lake. I didn't specify where. I just said near Green Lake. He asked me if I had a phone number, which I did, but I said no. But I'll, um, if you want, I'll take your number. And if I ever do change my mind about Princeton, you know, I'll give you a call. Well, um, he asked me if I was hungry, and I said yeah, sorta. You know, so he ends up giving me his number, and then he leaves and comes back with some Chick Fil A, some like chicken nuggets for me and Prince, and then like a drink and whatnot. And then he asks me um, again if I'm okay, and then he, uh, he ends up leaving. Despite Caitlin being at the hospital, she doesn't get seen by a doctor or get the needed help. She heads back to Woodland Park. Her fever has gotten worse, remaining over 102 degrees. At some point, two, maybe three days after meeting the chiropractor in front of the hospital, Caitlin hears her name being called at the edge of the encampment. And that's when I hear my name. I, someone says, Caitlin, and I look up, and that's where I see the chiropractor. And he's there. He's got his girlfriend with him and these two dogs, these two pit bulls, which at the time, like I said, was my deliria. I didn't realize it was in the middle of the night. Like, it, And I didn't put two and two together. Why is he... How strange. A, how did he find me in the first place? But he's like, I had to come find you. I, you know, I... I, I, I thought about it a long time, and I felt like if I didn't find you and something happened to you, I wouldn't be able to live with that. And so he shows me the, um, the online website where his picture shows where he, that he's like actually works there and whatnot. I, didn't, I wasn't intending on letting him watch him right at that point, but once we got to the car, like, like I said, it was all a blur kind of because of like how out of it I was. We get to his truck, and um, that's when, like, I'm uh, getting his license plate number, and that's when I realized that they are talking about watching him right then. And I knew that my mom wasn't going to be able to come take him for another two days, and I wasn't going to make it that long. Like, I could, in my delirium, I could tell that much, you know, because I'd had, I've gone septic before, and I almost died before. So they they end up taking prints, and um, uh, we exchange numbers and whatnot, and uh, I let him know that I'll be in there for a maximum of a couple days, you know. Caitlin heads to the hospital and is immediately admitted. The doctors perform surgery in the early morning, and she spends the day in recovery. They wanted me to stay another night. I had the gauze in the wounded. It was too painful to let them take out. So, like, I ended up leaving against medical advice because I didn't want to be in there for another night and be away from Prince for longer. So I get out, and it was, like, a little after 11, I message uh, you know, the chiropractor, and ask, hey, I'm out of the hospital, I'm okay now, um, and my mental health's not doing so great, I really need my prince back. Caitlin waits for a return text. He doesn't respond, which I understand, you know, it was like late, so I thought, you know, that's probably why, you know, he works a nine-to-five, you know. Well, then the next morning, early in the morning, he, he pretty much, uh, he messaged me back saying, you know, glad to hear you're okay, you know, um, I, I, um, I work late. My my um, job doesn't allow me too much uh, free time. Um, I get off at such and such. I think you said seven or something like that. Um, uh, let's make arrangements to get you your dog back. Was his words? Get you your dog back. The exact wording of the text from the chiropractor was, "Quote, okay, well, anytime tomorrow evening, I'm free to bring your dog back to you. I'll give you a call when I'm off from work." End of quote. We know this because 
Ed helped Caitlin recover the phone data from Caitlin's broken phone via a Freedom of Information Act request. There is also something else that Caitlin noticed that gave her pause. While looking over her hospital discharge paperwork, she noticed the time she was admitted to the hospital. And it was like 2 o'clock in the morning, almost 3 o'clock in the morning, which I was like, wait, I went straight from giving them the dog to watch to come straight here. So why were they there at that time of night? Like after 1 o'clock in the morning, in the middle of the night, with his two big pit bulls, when they didn't even know where I lived for sure. And so I was starting to panic, and that's that's when it kind of set in, you know. Um, I thought that I'd gotten, you know, everything that I needed. There's no way that the square bear is going to, you know, break the law and steal my dog, you know. <laughs> Joke's on me. The next day, Caitlin waits to hear back from the chiropractor, per his text that he would call when off work. So 7.30 hits, nothing. 8.30 hits, nothing. 9 o'clock hits, and I message him. I was like, so what's up? I don't remember exactly how I said it, but I contacted him, seeing, you know, what was going on. No response. Four days go by. Caitlin's anxiety is through the roof. And finally, he messages me back and pretty much along the line says that he doesn't know what I'm talking about. I gave him my dog. You know, sorry if I made decisions while under the influence and pretty much started making fun and poking, you know, fun at me for how high I was. I've never seen anybody that high. Yeah. So he just like just flipped, flipped the he switch. Yeah. He, he became a different person, and his story yep. changed. Yep. I don't understand where he was mentally, but I don't honestly. I don't think I'll ever know if he really did think I gave him the dog or not. I know for a fact he knew it was my intent to get my dog back, and he just used that. He used. He took advantage of the situation, you know. When he saw me with the white little fluffy adorable husky puppy at that entrance of the hospital that day, he from that day one wanted the dog. At this point, Caitlin contacts the police for help. It's an act of desperation on her part. Keep in mind that those in the homeless community rarely reach out to the police due to the friction that exists between living without basic needs being met and enforcement of our laws. I called Seattle police. I talked to them for like I I talked to them for like 40 minutes telling them everything and then after like talking to them and telling them the whole story, they tell me, "Oh, it's the wrong jurisdiction. You know, you need to call." And I talked to and I'd feel like I'd finally was getting somewhere and at the very end of, you know, telling them everything, they'd be like, "Uh, wrong jurisdiction. You need to call." You know, because the guy worked in and that's the only address I had for him, but he lived in and I, I handed him over to watch him in Seattle. So I was like, I spent probably close to six hours getting bounced back and forth to like place to place to place. And it was like so f- hopeless feeling, you know, because every time I'd feel like I was really getting an officer to, to listen to me and actually, you know, like understood what was going on and he believed me. You know, there was one specific officer that was a dog owner, and, like, he really, like, you know, he, he really said that he w- he really was going to help, you know, and then at the very end, he's like, I'm sorry, but this is out of our jurisdiction. And I could tell he cared and he wanted to help, but, like, I don't know. It re-concreted the feelings of, like, you know, when you're out here on the streets, you don't call the police. You know, that's, that's it's really looked down upon to call the police, you know, Even if someone's getting brutally beat, it's still looked down upon to call the police. With the power balance tipped completely in favor of the chiropractor 
and getting nowhere with the police, Caitlin decides to reach out for help to the mutual aid group that has been visiting the park regularly. She could have at that time just given up. She could have said, oh, this is just this just happens. This is just another shitty thing to happen to me, and like many people do. Instead, she was very much like, no, this is not right. And she asked for help. And I felt good that she was able that she asked us for help and that she trusted us enough to ask for help and that we wouldn't do what was done to her and and judge her like, oh, she's not able to take care of the dog. When she asked for help, it was not for us to swoop in and, you know, do everything for her, is that she wanted help with her mission of getting the dog back and wanted to consult with us on how that might be possible and then trusted us, trusted the methods that we proposed to her. So I thought that was really cool that it really did feel like we were working with her on that as opposed to for her. She was messed up, absolutely. And, and it was very hard, and, and it was hard for her not to lose her temper and get angry about things. And her cell phone kept breaking, and I, I watched her get mad at her already cracked cell phone and fling it down on the ground and think, that's why your cell phone breaks all the time, you know. So it was, it was hard for me to know what to do, but I, I, I got the story that somebody had offered to watch her dog and was now refusing to give it back. Uh, and so I thought, well, the least I can do if you'll tell me how to reach him is call him up. And my first thought was, well, I think I had several mixed thoughts, not all of which I'm proud of. But, but one thought was, was to, the one that prevailed, was to call up and, and say, hi, uh, I think there's been a misunderstanding. I appreciate that you could meet Caitlin and think that she was incapable of taking care of this beautiful uh, dog. Uh, but you don't understand that she has a community both in the park of other people and from outside the park that are looking out for her, that are trying to help. And so w we also are concerned about people's pets. And, and my, we know Caitlin, we know Prince. Um, and so... Let's, let's, let's just figure this out and assure you that, that Caitlin will be able to take good care of his dog uh, and that we're, we're here as well, looking out for Prince's welfare as well as Caitlin. So I was, I was hoping that could be. The, the thought I'm less proud of is some version of, do you know who you're talking to? Uh, you know, uh, uh, and that, that he would say, oh, uh, 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 a white guy who lives inside a house. Ah, well, this is different, you know. So I think that was mixed in there. But mainly it was to say, I assume you've misunderstood and out of concern for this creature, you've made this choice. You don't have to make this choice and you're causing a lot of suffering. Yeah, good, Let's talk. And good reason once that person heard that there was actually a, support network yes. that surrounded Caitlin and Prince that he would see the logic and the correctness of yes. letting the dog come back to Caitlin. Yes. Uh, and got the text back in response of, I don't know who you are. I don't want to talk to you. I've been advised only to talk to legal entities and so forth. So uh, at that point... Somewhere in there, I'd reached out to you, and you and I talked, and, and you essentially did a version of the same thing, of, of trying to call up and assume the best, assume 
that we can talk and figure this out personally. I kept trying to say this because uh, all options were on the table at that point, including police and legal action. Uh, and, and I wanted and to I, say, let's not do that. Hi, hi, friend. Let's not do that. Let's solve this another way. And, and we he didn't, didn't go there. He wasn't happy. Yeah. And I did get to talk to him, but ultimately met the same wall that, that, you, that you found. After several email and phone call exchanges, all of which were met with pushback, the team of volunteers at Woodland Park gathered to brainstorm next steps for helping Caitlin get Prince back. Several people on the team, on our Woodland Park team, had a similar thought, which was CESOL, Seattle Solidarity, this organization that for years and years has done hyper-local campaigns, very particularly against employers and landlords. If a landlord is not returning the money or is overcharging or an employer is mistreating somebody, we're going to gather a community to target that specific place. Put a little pressure. Community pressure. They've been doing this. Their success rate is astonishingly good, and they have a routine. They first write a letter, and they gather a group to, to grow, go in and say, hi, Here's our letter. Here's what our letter says. We wish you would make a different choice about your actions. And who knows? The person might say those community and do a different thing. And then they say, if not, we're going to escalate. And that can be some phone calls. That can be some emails. That can be talking to somebody's boss. One of their principles was to be able to escalate. Don't use up all of your steps all at once. Leave them a move. Give them the opportunity to make the right choice. Give them an out. Several people on our team said, yeah, let's, let's go all seesaw. And so I knew them uh, a little bit, uh, had participated in some of their campaigns, and so called them up, called up seesaw and said, hey, can I come to a meeting? And uh, I wasn't thinking to ask them to take this on as one of their campaigns, but rather saying, I think we want to organize something on your model. Can I consult with you? Can I get ideas from you? And they were very open to that and receptive to that. We then started to plan, what can we do? And, it, and one of the reasons this was appealing to me as a set of strategies is that it could be, it wasn't like we had to plan a, a rally and try to get a thousand people in one place at one time. It was possible to reach out and have people participate individually. And so could we plan steps that we could escalate? And how could we avoid involving police, judicial system, and so forth? Demonstrate community. Demonstrate this community of caring around Caitlin, that she's not alone. Uh, you're not going to be able to get away with this because she has no voice, no community. Yeah, and you know, I have to say, it's really a model that I wish our larger community in Seattle understood better because to keep taxing the resources of police and our judicial system, it's crazy making, right? Like, there are so many things that, it's like, it's like two, two siblings getting in a fight and right away screaming, screaming mom. They don't need to, right? They can actually learn to kind of work it out and don't bring mom or dad into it. And in a way, I think we just, we dial 911 so fast and we, and we, those words come out of our mouths, I'm gonna sue you so fast. The community can actually go back and forth and in a way that is smart about it. And um, I, I just find that so beautiful that there's another, there's an alternative to calling the police. 
We wanted alternatives to calling police, getting the judicial system involved. Caitlin had already talked to police about it. And that was a very big deal for an unhoused person to involve police in anything. So that just represented how isolated, how how uh, despairing that she felt about it and, and how clear it was. She had saved texts. Somewhere in here, you also met Caitlin and she was in enough physical distress that you called 911 and got her into the hospital, I believe. Yes, she, she was, she allowed, I mean, I asked her, I said, do you want The following to- recording is a short one minute snippet of the moment when I called 911 for Caitlin. We want to give a warning that this may be difficult for some of our listeners to hear. Caitlin was in a bad state. If you remember, she had left the hospital early against medical advice to work on getting Prince back. She was now in her tent dealing with a serious infection and still without her dog. Actually, the only thing, the only thing I have that actually means anything to me. My infection is, it's on my lower, like, right butt cheek. But now my lymph nodes, the ones that are right in the V of my, my, um... In your abdomen, your legs? Yeah. The one on the right side, those ones are so swollen, it, I can't even walk. Like, it hurts so bad, and my whole hip is now swollen all right here. Oh, yes, it's red and, like, really, really hot. So I can barely walk. (laughs) It hurts really, really bad. So are you able to call 911, or do you want me to call? Um, I'm going to call 911, or you can call. I don't care either way. I already know they're going to admit me, so I guarantee it, because I'm going to have to have surgery, and they're going to want to keep me there for at least a few days. I trust you. Thank you. Seriously, I appreciate this. You have no idea. As Caitlin is dealing with her medical emergency, Ed and the Woodland Park team start implementing their strategy to recover Prince. So, let's see, where were we in the unfolding story? Oh, she had called police, and so we had to recover some of these these texts um, from public information requests uh, from them so that we had the evidence of what he did. The police were not interested in taking it up. It was two small potatoes. And as we feared, her status as an unhoused person meant that, that she was not worth their time. Based off of the seesaw model, the first thing we did was get a bunch of people to call up the chiropractor and leave messages, some version of give the dog back. It's just the simple thing, asking people not to engage uh, if they got the person on the phone. He would certainly know what dog they were talking about. Uh, Very particularly, don't threaten, don't insult, don't... uh, Don't escalate. Don't escalate in any way, in any way. Deliver your message and be gone. And did a round of those. Uh, he he sometimes threatened people back and so forth. But we got a, a round of people to do that. We asked people just call once. Don't don't anybody call repeatedly. He's going to get repeated calls, but from different people. We're demonstrating that there's a bunch of people who care about it. We then did similar work to his workplace, the clinic, and where he worked. Hi, you have a person here who has done an unfortunate thing. Um, We think you need to take some responsibility for that as his employer. We, meanwhile, were planning several steps ahead. And so one thing that Seesaw does, if there's a landlord, if there's an employer, is prepare a, a leaflet, a flyer, 
so that in the neighborhood of the restaurant, they can put flyers up saying this restaurant mistreats its employees. Um, uh, this landlord uh, uh, mistreats uh, their tenants. So we had done, done that, you know, just to draft that and have that sort of thing available. That was a couple of steps down the road to start deploying that either uh, around his workplace or, or any place else. But we were still doing it. And we started to plan the next step, a different order than Seesaw would have done because we were starting with the, the community calling up and demonstrating there's a bunch of people who are going to say, give the dog back. Then let's go visit the workplace and uh, give what amounts to a demand letter. We've already talked to them, so we don't have to go into much detail. But so we prepared the flyer that would sort of summarize and say, you have uh, what amounts to a dog thief working in your clinic. I'm sure you don't want people to think that this is a place that hires dog thieves. So what do you want to do about that? We, five of us, uh, were available to go visit the clinic and and we put on our nice clothes. Uh, we didn't wear suits or anything like that. Um, but we gathered and, and made a plan to go in and uh, went in at a certain time and asked the receptionist if we could talk to manager, owner, whoever's in charge here today, fully expecting to have a conversation and them to go, oh, okay, thanks, bye. Uh, we'll take it under advisement. That was that would have been the victory condition for the day. Instead, the manager came out having already called the police and invited them to come and stop us from trespassing in the lobby of their clinic. Uh, and we argued about that a little bit. That's unfortunate. Uh, and started placing some of our leaflets around elsewhere in the lobby, at least, and say... Uh, this is too bad, and the, and the manager said, well, this is not our responsibility. That has, has nothing to do with us. And, of course, we said, yes, it does have to do with you. It's uh, your responsibility. It's, the, it's your public-facing presentation here uh, as well, and we have no responsibility to be quiet about that. So we hope that you'll, you'll negotiate, talk, learn more, uh, consider taking steps uh, about this. The chiropractor himself apparently learned about this, maybe at the end of a session, uh, came walking out past us, I think with intent to meet the police in the driveway and say, arrest these people. Uh, so there was, there was some little conversation with him. Uh, my partner uh, had a, a, a long listening session. My partner happens to be a world-class listener. And so, so sort of heard him out, uh, ranting at her in the sort of in the stairwell, and we walked out um, and stood in, the, stood in the, the parking lot. We said, okay, we're, we're, we're not gaining anything by staying here and waiting for the police to come and kick us out, so let's go regroup in the parking lot. And here was the chiropractor standing some distance away. I think I regret not taking the chance to engage him more. Several of us wondered about this afterwards. We did a little bit, but we didn't make the decision, let's go talk, let's hear, let's, this is our chance to listen. And I think we, several of us felt, mm, we let that opportunity pass. To hear, to hear what his story was. Uh, we heard a little bit, and it, it was unfortunate what we did hear, but we could have listened more. That was an opportunity. So we stood, decided what to do. Some people didn't want to 
wait around for the police to show up. Ultimately, we did. They showed up. They went in and talked to people in the clinic. Mission accomplished. The fact that the police had to come to the clinic and management and the practitioner all had to interrupt their day, the message was delivered. Yes, absolutely. 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 It was interesting that uh, at that point, one of our teams said, and, and we acknowledged that all of us felt, wow, he's never going to be persuaded. He's never going to give that dog back. It's not going to happen. And I, I totally understood the feeling. Uh, but I, as a longtime follower of Seesaw, noticed that I was just often shocked at their victories. The, the victory in this kind of campaign often looks impossible until it happens. I really didn't know how much was going on. All I know is that I was meeting up with Ed like a couple times a week, just touching base with him. Like, and I'm going to be honest, like when, when he'd tell me that, you know, they were doing this, like, you know, having a bunch of people call or that they showed up at the guy's workplace, I honestly didn't believe it until I saw it with my own eyes. And it made me cry, like, because, uh, like, you know, you just want to think, you know, no one's going to just do that for me for nothing, you know. I think that right there, too, was a pinnacle changing point on who I am, you know, really fundamentally so, you know. Just to, to feel that many people caring. For yeah. While Ed, Katie, and others had mobilized, putting their plan into action, Caitlin was growing more worried by the day. She was scared that her prince would not remember her. A whole series of doubts and fears were taking root. I really was. I was so scared that, because it had been months. It had been like two, going on two and a half months since he'd been gone, you know, and he was a puppy. They're very, they imprint on their first year, you know, big time. You know, and he was still like, you know, less than a year old. Inside of me, you know, I was somewhat thinking, well, maybe he is better off with him in a home, you know, maybe, you know, and it, it all, all those doubts start rushing. Yep. Yeah, I don't care what anybody thinks. I've done everything from day one that I can do for this dog to be a, what he needs as an owner. You know, even when it comes to like, you know, if I didn't have money to get us both food, he was fed. He was never not fed. If anything, this dog ate better than anybody at Green Lake, honestly. It was hard not to imagine having to go to Caitlin and give up and say, nope, we can't do it. There's nothing else we can do. It was hard not to think about that. And that, that kept me up at night. Just the possibility. Having stepped in, uh, there's an implicit promise, regardless of what was actually said. So that was, that was really unpleasant. And I, I would even imagine that telling Caitlin that would be harder than actually continuing. Like continuing, oh, would, absolutely. Continuing would be the easier path, <laughs> actually, just to keep hounding yes, this person, yes. than than to have to go back and yes. break, break that news to Caitlin. And she was, meanwhile, uh, totally with this plan. She was because it was more and more people fighting for her. She totally got that. She was a she was a trooper, uh, hanging in there, uh, trusting that we were working, uh, uh, believing what we say about uh, moving forward and the clock was ticking with with friendly loving prince who might be forgetting about her and bonding with a new person when it was getting when weeks were turning into months 
about it. So, gosh, would it be too late uh, in some way? And I had no sense of that, one way or the other. While weeks were turning into months, things were, in fact, happening. The phone calls were increasing, even several from out of the country, and flyers were put up in the neighborhoods surrounding the clinic where the chiropractor worked. And then, suddenly, something shifted. And then we uh, got uh, a message from somebody in where the clinic is, who is a peer counselor for homeless veterans, because he had been homeless himself. Um, and he therefore was the person who had patronized this clinic and was recommending in the position to recommend other people to go and use this clinic. He had seen one of our flyers, so it was enough for him to get in touch and say, uh, this is an extremely messed up situation. How shall I help? And wanted to learn a little bit more and strategize a little bit more. So he, called, he got in touch with you guys before he got in touch with the chiropractor. Correct, correct so that he could uh, uh, understand what was the right move in terms of any plans that we were making. So several things happened at once. A new round of calls started coming in. A couple of people saying, we'd love to listen to you if possible. And then this uh, peer counselor sending a letter to the clinic saying this is absolutely unacceptable. It does reflect on your business no legal or moral right to this. Uh, I'm going to tell my clients not to patronize your clinic. I'm going to talk to my friends in the local press and the local city council and so forth. Um, so those things all happened within within some days. The river just crested the shore. It, it kind of did. Um, so that was happening at the same time. And suddenly he was he, he responded to my partner. He responded to Katie the co-organizer of the team saying, uh, yes, we can meet and you, uh, you and talk. Yes, we can meet and talk. Uh, and can you help me get in touch with Caitlin? Asked several people. He reached out to the peer counselor and said, can you facilitate me getting in touch with this person? It wasn't clear if he wanted to negotiate or justify himself. His, his language in all the texts he was sending was self-justifying a lot. I'm doing the right thing here, but I'm being misunderstood, uh, uh, but I'm tired of it, uh, and so forth. It was a, a Sunday night or something like that that Caitlin got in touch with me and said, the chiropractor wants to get in touch and give Prince back. And he messages me saying, um, where do you want to meet up? You can have the dog back. Just tell these people to stop. Like, I halfway didn't know if he was just messing with me. I don't know. It blew my mind. And so I think that's when I called Ed, I believe. And we made the arrangements. Was it that night or the next night? It was the next night, I think, to meet up in at the mall to, to, to get him returned to us. And I remember fucking being so scared that he wasn't going to remember me. So I went over to uh, meet Caitlin, and uh, one of her friends uh, named Joe was going to join us for the ride, which was good. It was a fine thing. And we got in the car and rode up. She showed me the text, showed me the text, uh, so that I knew it was all true. Uh, and where she had said, thank you, we'll meet you at such and such a time. Uh, and despite all of this... Uh, uh, I know that you've probably bonded with Prince, 
and in the time and it's probably going to be really hard for you to be separated from Prince and there is a dog park near where I live uh, which was the heroic Caitlin to me uh, and he had said uh, thanks but I would prefer to never see or hear from you again and he said a number of other things just about this has changed my attitude toward homeless people and it could have been beautiful and nobody understands me was his message I've been totally misunderstood in this situation it's just very interesting to be on the other side of of the privilege wall and see what that looks like we drove up it was uh, we we're gonna meet at 8 o'clock uh, and took a long drive up and went into a mall parking lot so it's lit but it's still sort of deserted and so forth and waited uh, the suspense was huge huge is this really gonna happen is he really gonna show up is it gonna be another delay are we going to all this trouble for nothing is there gonna be an argument at the last minute uh, is there gonna be a tussle at the last minute what's gonna happen here uh, for Caitlin, the suspense was still, is Prince going to recognize me? Is he possibly going to, is it possible that he could have forgotten me? Is he going to not want to leave these new people? So much anxiety from all of us. Uh, and so, okay, how can we avoid a tussle? Ed originally asked me to stay in the car, but, you know, being me, I couldn't. If I sat by the car like he asked. I was not announcing on the on the lists to my team, hey, he's giving the dog back or anything like that. It could still go wrong. It could still go wrong. So let's just wait until until it happens. So lots of suspense about that. Therefore, when we got there, we were waiting. Uh, I suggested strongly, let me go over to him. Why don't you two stay over here so there's no outbreak of I don't know what, I don't know what in this situation. So he sat and waited, tick-tock, like a, some kind of prisoner exchange or uh, something happening in a deserted parking lot. And then finally the, the white pickup truck drove up 20, 30 yards away and stopped. And we sat and wondered, anything going to happen here? Um, so therefore, okay, let's do our plan. Uh, I'll go over and, and talk. And I walked over, and it happened that the truck drove up so that the driver's side was away from us. So I walked around the truck to the other side, not knowing quite what I would encounter, and stood looking through the window at the person who's... We had seen each other's face before, so he had reason to, to recognize me. And then he opened the door, and uh, had a leash on Prince, so handed me the leash, and I said, hi, Prince, hi, buddy. Took Prince out, they closed the door. No words were spoken. They moved away slowly. I think I saw them kind of looking back, very likely sad at, at leaving Prince. And we all wanted to see what Prince's response would be, and Prince saw Caitlin. Like, he barely stops for a second, I guess, then, and opens his door, hands Ed the leash, and then he hops out. And that's when I walk forward a few steps, start kind of, like, you know, almost crying. And I squat down, and I say, Prince! And he then sees me, and he bolts towards me so hard, I think he, like, yanked the leash out of Ed's hands. 
and like I was already crouched down and he he comes at me and tackles me so hard I fall back onto my back and he's like licking me ferociously like and like whining like like you know doing the little husky whine like <laughs> like you know spinning in circles and like licking me some more like it, I started crying you know like I was I couldn't believe you know that we had I, I he was back Prince ran over and knocked Caitlin down jumped on Caitlin He's, he's, they're about the same size. They're almost the, the same size now. And, and hugged in and were crying and yowling and laughing and rolling around on the ground. Happiest creatures. I wish I was, I was a little sad that, that 50 more people were not there experiencing the moment. What was Caitlin's, uh, what were Caitlin's first words? Do you remember? I don't, I don't. They weren't to me, they were to Prince. I took a couple of random, not very good photos just to just so that people could see them. And then, and then, you bet, said, we got the dog back to, to the whole team. We get in the car, and then that's when Ed reveals to me, I can't believe it worked. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, you didn't think it was going to work? Because, <laughs> like, he was my rock during that whole time. Like, he was so sure that, you know... We were gonna get the dog back, just like, just wait, <laughs> And so, like, we was, get, yeah, we get in the being, car. He yeah. was being strong for you. Yep. I've fought a lot of losing battles. I've chosen a lot of battles that were unlikely to win in my life, thinking they're worth fighting for and so forth anyway. It's lovely once in a while to win a fight, to do something that's worth doing and, and have it work. We don't always have the chance to really help somebody out, really, really, really do something for somebody. And I think several of us felt this, that we had the chance to help. We had the chance to have an impact. With all the disagreements and difficult moments that arise in society, ones that come from the daily back and forth of human relationships, ones that we have all experienced, it's important to know to trust that everyone is doing the best they can with what they have in each new moment. Doing the best we can doesn't mean that we're always doing the right thing, nor that we should get a free pass when wrong is done to others. Rather, to just know that we're all on a steep learning curve, making mistakes as we go, learning how to be our best human self. For that, we can give each other space and grace to continue to reflect and learn. We reached out to the chiropractor, and while he declined to come on the show, we are holding space for him to reach back out to us to share his reflections. I recently visited with Caitlin, and I'm extremely excited to tell you that she now lives with Prince in a tiny home village. She no longer has any outstanding warrants or pending legal issues, and is working on an agreement she made with her friend Ed to address her substance abuse. She is trying with all of her heart to be her best human self, and it is showing beautifully. So, Caitlin, where are you now with drugs? What's, um, what's going on? I pretty much, like, I've slowed way down compared, if you, you want the honest truth, or do you want, like, like the, the podcast truth? I want, well, they're the same. Okay, Honest cool. truth and podcast <laughs> truth are the same um, thing. What's it called? My um, case worker is supposed to be helping me get a um, 
another intake appointment but um I, I still use but not nearly as bad isn't it and as you can see talking to me it doesn't have the hold that it used to have no. over me you no know? i noticed it actually when you walked up you look like a you look like a different person. i know <laughs> you're you are way healthier in fact in fact to be honest i expected you to say i'm not using it all really <laughs> yeah i did because you just you look the feel the vibe that comes off of you you it feels like you have more purpose, more direction. You're, you're kind of just more present. Caitlin hopes to one day go to school and become a mortician or do crime scene cleanup. She feels with all that she has seen and lived through, she would love and excel at that type of work. And I couldn't agree more. Ed, I have one last question for you. When you think back on this whole experience with Caitlin, what's the takeaway? Being in community what is what made the difference. If, if Caitlin had even been by herself and somebody that, that was isolated on the street and I'd been by myself, I don't know that I could have sustained this. I don't know if I would have been willing to enter into a relationship if it was just me. So community helping community uh, was what made it possible. Yep. And Which brings us full circle to mutual aid. Yes, yes. What seems to be new in my experience is that there's a bunch of people in our larger community and region who are getting to know a bunch of different unhoused folks all over the place and are listening to what they're saying. It feels to me as if there's at least some more people who are hearing the voices of people who've been going through stuff and can report on that and can witness that uh, as well. And so the the bringing food and the helping with supplies and stuff like that is uh, nice for survival, is a fine thing to do, and is also a tool for relationship building with another community. That's really what it was, yeah. not just individuals with individuals. Yeah. That's what made it possible. We've included a list of Seattle mutual aid groups that you can get involved with in the episode page on our website. You Know Me Now is produced written and edited by Tomas Bernatsky and me, Rex Holbein. We would like to thank Caitlin, Katie, and Ed for taking the time to speak with us. You Know Me Now has a Facebook and Instagram page where you can join in on the conversation. We also have a website at youknowmenow.com where you can see photos of Caitlin and Prince together as well as Katie and Ed. We also have stories of other folks we feel you should get to know. Thanks as always for listening.